Father dear, thank you once again for the chance to be together and to open your word one more time. And I want to pray uh, one more time for a special blessing upon this church family and upon their pastor, Lord, and all the leaders and all those that come just to absorb the lessons of grace and love that uh, they will bring. So I just pray, Lord, that you'll bless our final time together this afternoon and may we continue to be amazed at your grace. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I always thought she was fun to read. Irma Bombeck, she said once in church the other Sunday, I was intent on a small child who was turning around and smiling at everyone. He wasn't gurgling, spitting, humming, kicking, tearing hymnals, or rummaging through his mother's handbag. He was just smiling. Finally, his mother jerked him about and in a stage whisper that could be heard in a little theater off Broadway said, Stop that grinning! You're in church! (laughs) With that, she gave him a belt and as the tears rolled down his cheeks, she added, That's better! And turned to her tears. (laughs) And Irma, of course, rightly says, Boy, if you couldn't smile in church, where was there left to go? Well... In the company of saints, there's always some tears and some, some smiles. And we're going to have some of both of those today. Um, but let's start a little bit with some of the tears. I'm going to give you a sneak peek at where we're going to go. Genesis 45, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into the story. And, you know, I could do about uh, six more hours on this, but I don't think you like me that much. And uh, I, I think I'd be too tired before then. But just a sneak peek as to where we're going. First two verses of Genesis 45. And I'll give you a second to get to it. And if you don't have your Bible, it's up on the screen for you. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard all about it. I don't know if you ever read Yancey's What's So Amazing About Grace. He's got just a little section in there on that. And he asked this question, what is that whale? Is Joseph sick? No, his health is fine. It was the sound of a man forgiving. Forgiving can be very hard work. It can be very costly. And by the way, it's a process. Um, Even if you were here last night and heard us talk about, you know, having to let go. Sometimes you have to let go the same thing more than one time. That's okay. It's part of the healing process. It's part of the way it goes. So if you find yourself feeling old feelings, you get the opportunity all over again to experience release. Even if it's something that you've had to before, it's okay. Just forgive again. That's the best way to do it. Well, uh, we read a lot last, uh, yesterday and this morning about, or at least this morning about the story. We won't go back to the original place where uh, Joseph forgave. We've already done that. Um, but it is poignant to think about Joseph crying out the way he did, so loudly that it got the attention of Pharaoh's household. Uh, you know, Joseph was an important person to Pharaoh. <laughs> he wanted him to be in good health and to be okay. And it probably raised some alarm that he was crying this way. But um, when he was wailing, those were the, the tears and the sounds of a man. Not just struggling with forgiveness, because we, you know, he wasn't about should he forgive. He'd already done that. He was in the process of it. But it, these were the sounds of a man trying to figure out what the possibilities were 
now that he had forgiven. And now that he is faced with his brothers. And here's the deal. Joseph is prime minister of Egypt. And who were they? I mean, you saw clearly in that little video from this morning, they're lent. You know, they're dust. They're, they're nobodies. Uh, they, they, they pose no threat to Joseph whatsoever. Except there is no throne high enough, but what your heart cannot still be wounded. And Joseph had to make sure that he would not be wounded again by his brothers. And you can't blame him because there are limits to the wounds that a heart can bear. Now we'll go back to, uh, or go, yeah, let's go back a little bit in time because there's a couple things about this story that are kind of fun. Let's go back to 42, verse 1. I I just read you this because I just think it's so funny sometimes how the scripture says things. We don't think there's humor in scripture, but there is. Uh, There's there's so much, and I just love this one, 42, 1 and 2. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? (laughs) Don't you love that? Why are you standing around here looking at each other? Go to Egypt and get some grain. I love the way Moses wrote all this stuff up. You know, he was, we believe, the author of Genesis. Later on, when he, he's talking to his family, he tells, you know, he wants them to bring dad. He says, regard, tell them to regard not your stuff. Who would use a phrase like that in the Bible? Regard not your stuff. Forget all that old stuff. I got new stuff for you here in Egypt. But isn't that kind of a funny way? But what are you standing around looking at each other for? Go to Egypt and get some grain. I'm hungry. And so soon they were uh, standing around looking at each other, but there was one more brother looking than they realized, right? And that's when, of course, the moment when they were standing in front of Joseph, which completely catches him off guard, right? Long forgiven them, but he never anticipated seeing them again. So now he's got to figure out what that means. He's got to figure out what he's going to do with that opportunity that God has given entirely for them. Now, he's not required to stay in relationship, but he wanted to. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that say something about the character of Joseph, even after all he had been through for all of the years it separated them? And now they're back together again, and he's trying his best to figure out, what do I do with this moment and this possibility? Where should it go? But he had to make sure it was safe, as we talked about this morning. You know, I think he allowed himself a little hope when he was listening to them talk. Remember, you notice depicted there that the, the, his servant was whispering to him. Joseph was pretending not to be able to understand, see. I think he kind of wanted to get a sense of what, his, what, you know, what they were really saying without them realizing that he knew what they were saying. Kind of smart guy Joseph was, right? Well, that we, we, uh, chapter 41, verse 21 and 22. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. I think Joseph was just really being smart. He was trying to scope out whether or not this was safe. So he's trying to get a sense of who these guys were. Now, the next time that they would meet, quite different circumstances, Joseph had uh, sent them home and um, they were going to bring Benjamin back. You know, the next time they were supposed to take care of that little detail. And, uh, and so they finally ended up coming back because you know, they ran out of grain. The famine was still on. So they came back, uh, but, but they were a little bit afraid. Do you remember why they might have been afraid to come back to Egypt? Anybody remember the story? What did they find in their sacks when they got home? 
well, all the money that, that they had given to buy the grain to begin with, right? So they were a little afraid when they got back the second time that there was going to be some retribution for that. Even though Benjamin was with them, they were kind of nervous. Look at 43, verse 18. Now the men were frightened when they were taken to his house, meaning Joseph's house. They thought, we were brought here because of the silver that was put back into our sacks the first time. He wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. Boy, donkeys were really valuable back then, weren't they? (laughs) Part of the booty of war, I guess. You could take the other guy's donkeys. Well, I guess I should pay more attention to donkeys somewhere along the way. Well, they were pretty sure that Joseph was up to no good by this. And and they were kind of scared. But the most amazing thing happened. While they were afraid Joseph was up to no good, Joseph only had one thing in mind, and that was a banquet of grace. I don't know how else to say it. Look at verse 33, and I'm going to make a comment about it because it's so interesting. Let's see, 44. Okay, they served him by him. Uh, let's see, I'm sorry, I started, I started 32. The men had been seated before him in the order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. You know why they did that? Sure, he knew everybody in the room. He knew all the players. But you know what's so astonishing about that? I didn't calculate this, but somebody did. There are 39 million 917,000 different ways 11 people can be seated around the table. Now you see why they were astonished. (laughs) How could he have guessed this? That should have been a giant hint to them, you would have thought, but they never figured that out. Something else happened here. Let's keep reading. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's, so they feasted and drank freely with him. Now, I love that, that he gave Benjamin five times. I did that because, you know, that was, uh, you know, his brother from his mother. You know, the other brothers were his stepmom, you know, however they rephrased that there in those days. Uh, Leah's children, let's say it that way, and a couple of her servants' children, you know. Uh, but, But this was, you know, his mother's other son. This is, you know, so Benjamin was special, but I think he had something else in mind. I also wanted to think, I also think he wanted to find out if the brothers were still easily provoked to jealousy or if perhaps they had just transferred their animosity from him to Benjamin. So this is again part of Joseph's testing to see if it's safe to have a new relationship again with this group of brothers, you see. But the neat thing was there was no hint of that in either of those elements. And as he was listening to their dinner conversation, there was no hint of jealousy, no anger, no animosity. They were there and just thrilled out of their mind they weren't in jail for the silver that you know, they, they found in their, in their sacks on the way home. So uh, even without their realizing they did it, the brothers were actually doing pretty well. They, they made it through Jeopardy okay. They sailed through double, je- double Jeopardy. And now they're ready for final Jeopardy. Okay, and final jeopardy, the answer is Joseph's silver cup. And the question, of course, is what was found in Benjamin's sack? So now, one more time after they've left, they've, you know, Joseph sent a steward out to check their sacks and what was in the sack of Benjamin. It was, of course, a silver cup. So they were hauled right back in and boy, were they all worried. But I'll tell you something. I believe that the paradox here is that it wasn't just the brothers who were nervous. The paradox here, even though they were on their knees one more time, you know, the vision's coming true. 
Joseph was probably more anxious than them because he knew this was the moment he would have to make the decision on whether or not the reunion actually took place. What would happen in the next few moments would determine the entire future of this family. And I think Joseph was pretty nervous. There's a lot riding on this. Any hope of a reunion would come out of the next few minutes. And it was because of a passionate plea that Judah made. Judah finally said, we can't afford to leave Benjamin here. I mean, they were volunteering, several of them volunteered to just take his place. They couldn't bear the thought of leaving Benjamin in Egypt because they knew it would kill their father. And they thought, we cannot do that to him again. And those were the magic words. Those were the magic words. When Joseph realized that they, they really had lived in remorse and guilt for what they had done. And he realized that they, they would die before they would want to see anything happen to their father again. It wasn't until this moment that Joseph felt safe enough to reveal who he was. What a powerful moment. Wouldn't you love to have been there? I would love to have been a fly on the wall and just, just seen and felt the emotion in the air. Maybe I'll give you a chance to do that one more time before we go today. Well, let's go ahead and read the full reunion scene. Back to chapter 45 where we started this afternoon. Let's go right at verse 1 again. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly, the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. You've you got to think the brothers were wondering, what in the world is wrong with this guy? Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were scared out of their ever-loving minds. That's my translation, but you get the idea. They were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And at that moment, the glorious possibilities of forgiveness bloomed into their full possibilities. What a wonderful moment. What a wonderful, new, joyful reality. And it truly was Joseph's magnificent, unqualified forgiveness that erupted in that reunion that could only happen because now he realized it could be safe once again. So finally, even though he'd forgiven years before, now all of his forgiveness issues are laid to rest. Good for Joseph. <laughs> but the forgiveness issues of the brothers are just starting. Theirs are just starting. And they had two very important things to overcome in the process of their dealing with their forgiveness issues. You think theirs would be the easy ones? I think theirs were harder than forgiving somebody else. Here's the first of the two things that was so hard for them. They had to accept his forgiveness. They had to accept his acceptance of them and trust that his forgiveness was real. And everything about the way he dealt with them said the forgiveness is real. In fact, Joseph's forgiveness was so rich and so deep and, and so profound 
that we all see his act of forgiveness just like we see the forgiveness of Jesus toward us. In fact, Chuck Swindoll in his book on Joseph uh, made an incredible couple of comments on this where he, he realizes that parallel and draws them out. He says, Joseph's life offers us a magnificent portrayal of the grace of God as he came to our rescue in the person of his son, Jesus. So many come to him like Joseph's brothers, feeling the distance and fearing the worst from God, only to have him demonstrate incredible generosity and mercy. Instead of being blamed, we're forgiven. Instead of feeling guilty, we are freed. And instead of experiencing punishment, which we certainly deserve, we are seated at his table and served more than we can ever take in. For some, it's too unreal. So we desperately plead our case only to have him speaking kindly to us, promising us peace in our own language. We then try to fend off his anger by bargaining with him, thinking our hard work and sincere efforts will pay him back for all of those past evil deeds we're guilty of. But to our astonishment, he never even considered our attempts important enough to mention. What he had in mind was overwhelming us with such an abundance, we'd realize we could never, ever repay. We have to accept the acceptance. When Jan and I finally got out of college and were in our first teaching job, we thought we had all the money in the world. The fact is that uh, Jana was working uh, for Adventist Health, actually, in Moberly Regional Medical Center in Moberly, Missouri. We first year was in the mission field out there teaching at Sunnydale Academy in Missouri. At least felt like the mission field to us. It's out there in the middle of nowhere. Why do we do that with our academies? There's nowhere out there. And my check did not yet have a comma in it. All right? So that's a couple of years ago, you can tell. But somehow or other, we decided that we didn't need our little Chevrolet Chevette. If you don't remember that car, God is kind to you because it really wasn't much of a car. (laughs) But uh, we had a friend who was the sales manager of the Chevy dealership in Chattanooga, old family friend of ours. So we went to see him over uh, Thanksgiving vacation, and we drove down to Chattanooga in our Chevette, but drove home in a brand new next model year. Monte Carlo. Now, this was in the years when the Monte Carlo was a cool car. Big car. Had that kind of T-top to it, you know, with a vinyl roof on part of it, and electric seats, and the split bench, and, you know, oh, man, it was it, plush seats. Oh, we loved that car. We loved that car. And it was only going to be, you know, we thought a certain amount a month. <laughs> well, we forgot that insurance goes up when you get a car that's worth about four times what your Chevette's worth. And we forgot that, you know, bigger wheels mean bigger tires and bigger costs and less gas mileage in the Chevette. And, and we realized pretty soon that we needed a comma, maybe two in our paycheck to take care of a car like that. So we moved to Mount Pisgah Academy and realized we had, had to get out from under that thing. So we made arrangements. My mom, I think, helped us sell it in the city of Charlotte. A lot of people that could buy a car there. And we got out of it losing just a few hundred. We were lucky just to have lost a little bit. It was fun having it while we did, while we could, but, boy, it wasn't worth you know, the expense. So we had to just kind of buy something to bide some time for us for a little while. So we looked in the newspaper, and we found a car for about 800 bucks. It was a, uh, about a 10- or 12-year-old Mercury Montego, all right, pea green. And 
just imagine the worst color pea green you can imagine. That was this car. It was the most hideous color car you could ever imagine. We drove the thing, and actually it drove really well. We brought the maintenance or the uh, shop teacher from Mount Pisgah over, who was a good friend of ours on staff with us, and we said, hey, look this over and tell us if you think it's in good shape. And he looked under the hood, and he went around the block with us, and he said, I don't see anything wrong with this for 800 bucks. And boy, that car just drove like a charm for about two months. And then it started acting up, you know. Now, I don't even know if people today drive cars like this or even refer to them like this. In those days, we would call a car like this a bomb, you know. If you've never had a bomb in your life, you're just missing out on an experience. Mm -hmm. I almost feel bad for you. This was the kind of car that, well, as time went on, you know, most of the time you, you pull into a gas station and you say, fill up. And this was back in the years when they actually still did that. Well, we didn't say that. When we pulled into a gas station, we would say, please check the oil, please check the transmission fluid, and please top off the brake fluid, and please take one look at the radiator too. I mean, that's how bad it was. Transmission was skipping and missing. We had to stop every few miles and put flu. It was just, it was terrible. Well, about the time it was acting its worst, we get a call to go to San Diego to begin our work as a youth pastor out there. And by the way, we've learned something, and we are starting to think it's true of Colorado as well. But if you ever get a call to like San Diego, California, you don't even have to pray. You know, that's, that's automatically just God's will, and you know it. So you just, you just go to San Diego. They have two seasons in San Diego, night and day. <laughs> and it really is literally about that much. We, we arrived in San Diego July 1. It was the following April before we had turned our windshield wiper on for the first time. And, you know, 60, 65 to 75 degrees most of the year round. Boy, what an incredible place to go. But we knew we were going to have to drive from North Carolina to San Diego. We didn't want to try to risk it in that old Montego. We just knew we couldn't do it. So we decided we were going to try a new car one more time. Uh, we thought maybe we could afford it now. So we went down to the Honda dealer in Asheville, North Carolina. The Honda Civics had just grown. You remember the kind that, you know, the original Honda Civics, you could almost put them in your back pocket. You didn't have to park them on the street. Now you could just put them in your back pocket and dig in your house. They're little tiny things. Well, they, they actually made them kind of like a regular size car. And we thought, well, that's perfect for us. We just have one child and it didn't even have air conditioning, but we didn't need it in San Diego, you know? So we'll, the cheapest Honda we can get, but we still be a good one. So we went in and we, we this was the days when, by the way, if you wanted a Honda, you were lucky if the dealer didn't add $2,000 to the price just because they could. These cars were so popular back then. You didn't, get, you didn't even ask for a discount because you knew there, there wasn't you know, going to be one. So we went in and got what the price was going to be. And, and then he asked the inevitable question. Then he said, well, do you have a car to, to trade in? And we kind of looked at each other and said, well, sort of. Uh, well, can I look at it? And we said, sure, we'll be happy to let you. We, we had it out there, but we didn't want to look at it then, you know. So we took it back and kind of cleaned up pea green as best you can, you know, and vacuumed it out and did all that stuff. And, and, and as we were driving back, we kind of stopped about a quarter of a mile from the dealer and topped off the transmission fluid and, and the brake fluid and, and the radiator fill. And, you know, we just got everything, all the fluids back up. And, and, uh, and so we drove it in and went back into our salesman and said, okay, the car's here. I want you to look it over. He said, great. Give me the keys. I'll be back in a few minutes. So Jan and I were talking while the guy's out. <laughs> we're thinking, oh, man, we're going to be lucky if he doesn't charge us $200 just to take it off the street. What is he going to give us for this car? Maybe a couple hundred if we're really lucky. And, you know, again, this is against a Honda. He doesn't have to give us a thing. What's going to happen? And I thought to myself, 
And if he gives us even three or four hundred, we ought to just really be thrilled. So he came back in after a while. It seemed like he was out a long time. Maybe long enough for some of those fluids to get low again. I don't know. He came in and, you know, punched his adding machine again, put his pencil down and, and leaned back. And he said, well, Mr. and Ms. Thurber, nobody had ever called us that, really. You know, that out in the business world, we're so young. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you $500 for your car. You know, I still have little bite marks on the inside of my cheeks right here because I didn't want to bust into this big smile and blow the deal. <laughs> $500, are you kidding? So I kind of leaned back and looked over at Jana and, and well, I, I guess we could take that. <laughs> he gave us 500 bucks for it. And while he was out with the car, I thought, you know, if he, if he gets a whiff of what this thing really is, he'll never make the deal. If he knew what he was getting, he'd never make the deal. And I, I left there thinking, but we got one over on the car dealer. Do you know what I figured out later? You don't ever get one over on the car dealer. He knows. You worry that God won't take you if he knows what he's getting? Let me tell you the truth. He knows. And Swindoll just reminded us of the deal God was willing to make for you and me. It's not easy to accept his acceptance, but we ought to. What a powerful, powerful statement of love he makes to us. He knows what he's getting, and he makes the deal anyway. That ought to warm your heart today. Now, sometimes <laughs> forgiveness doesn't get accepted because, well... It never, incur, it never occurs to us that we might need it. Now, here's a great line you might want to use in a wedding sometime. I use this in almost every wedding that I use. Many promising reconciliations are broken down because while both parties came prepared to forgive, neither party came prepared to be forgiven. Hmm. Sometimes we just don't think we need it. And so forgiveness doesn't happen. Well, Joseph probably was smart enough to figure out that most people think, because they have experience in life, that if somebody forgives you, there's a catch. You know, if somebody comes up to you and they're real nice to you, what are you thinking? You know, what do they want, right? Isn't that kind of the natural thing? Somebody is, is too gracious with forgiving, I wonder what the catch is. I think they were worried about a catch, and I think Joseph was smart enough to kind of intercept that. Chapter 45, verse 9 through 13 talks about that. This is really incredible. This shows you how genuine his forgiveness was. He's talking about, uh, you know, bringing their dad down. He says, now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds, and all you have, I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will come destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin. It is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded to me in Egypt and about everything they have seen, and bring my father down quickly. What's missing? 
and be sure and tell dad what you did to me. Joseph trusted them to say whatever they wanted to. There was no condition in his forgiveness. In fact, if they chose not to say anything to their father, he would not say anything to their father. I believe that because I believe that's the nature of this man, Joseph. But he gave them the opportunity to decide what it was they would tell dear old dad. Now, patriarchs and prophets tells us that they did confess. But... Joseph's forgiveness was not based on that. He wanted no barriers to them accepting his forgiveness because they'd need that in order to deal with their other forgiveness issue. And this is the hardest one of all. Let's go back to that great reunion. There's one verse I didn't read on purpose. 45 verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves. What is he saying? Forgive yourself. Forgive yourself. Many of us have learned along the way that forgiving ourselves is harder than forgiving somebody else. I ran across this quote from a little book called Forgiveness, the Ultimate Miracle. Author is Paul Meyer, and here's what he said about forgiving yourself. And this one just rocked me back in my chair. Unforgiveness that is self-directed will do more damage than any other form of unforgiveness. Why do we struggle with forgiving ourselves? Simple, because we just can't believe that God would forgive us. We have trouble believing Psalms 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Forgiving yourself gives you permission to not be perfect. And no, I'm not going to enter into a theological debate with you on this. Do you get upset with yourself when you were not perfect? You expect more from yourself. That's reasonable. You could have done better. That's probable. You should be perfect. Mm, It's not possible. Unrealistic expectations have a way of seeping into the other areas of your life. Do you expect perfection from your spouse, from your children, from your employees, from your boss, from your friends? And if so, the natural next step is to believe that acceptance and approval are based on perfection. Perfection first, then acceptance. Perfection first, then approval. It doesn't work that way. Such a view, belief, and approach will damage every relationship you have. Wow. You got to learn to forgive yourself. You know, for 20 long years those brothers suffered with their guilt and their remorse. And Joseph knew it was time to let them off the hook. They'd suffered enough. It was time to let that go. So as a pastor, this is a point where I can now say to you, do you have something you need to forgive yourself for today? 
something that's been haunting you for a while, just not felt free. And I'm not talking about the kind of cheap self-forgiveness that, that, uh, that kind of lets you off a hook that you should probably still be on. <laughs> We've all got a few of those, you know. I, I don't mean the kind of thing where we, we did something, we, we, just, we just want to pretend like we never did it, and we want them to pretend that too, you know. I'm talking about the kind of stuff for which you have acquired a license to forgive. You know, if, forgive yourself. If you've gone to somebody and you've tried to make amends and they've, they've given you their statement of forgiveness, who are you to hold out on yourself? That's the time to let it go. And then, of course, there are those times where you can't ask for forgiveness. I've been rather well-behaved this weekend. You don't know this, but I really use a lot of humor in a lot of my sermons. I, I've been holding back on purpose just... Well, the subject matter was such that I, you know, I had to be careful with it. Um, my very first sermon in San Diego when I was a young pastor, uh, I, I used some humor in there. And uh, I thought the congregation responded really well to it. It was appropriate. It was, you know, it was pointed. It, fit, it, it was a good illustration and a couple of different things. And I never thought a thing about it. Well, Jan and I went, went down to our old church in San Diego um, Probably 25 years later, they were celebrating the opening of, of uh, the new sanctuary they'd finally been able to build on the property that uh, they had worked on for so long that we got started while I was still there as a pastor. And, and, and the potluck afterwards, after everybody was in such this good mood, this guy came up to me that I never remember having seen before. And he said, hey, pastor, I just want to tell you something. And, and I was thinking, well, I wonder what this is, you know. And he said, I just want to let you know. He said that my wife was in church um, the week that you spoke that very first time that you had a sermon and you used all that humor, she was so offended she left and she's never been back to church since. And I, I was so shocked at that, I, I didn't know what to say. And in a moment he was gone and I never could find him again in the crowd and he was gone. I have no way to sit down with that lady and say, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry that offended you, I wouldn't have done that for anything. You know, how, how can I restore, you know, what, what do you do when there's, when there's no chance? And sometimes that happens. Sometimes there's, there's things that happen between people and you just don't get the opportunity to try to settle it that way. I love what Smeads, back to his book, The Art of Forgiving. What can a person do if she blames herself, asks to be forgiven, and has the door of rejection slammed in her face? Her only option is an appeal to God. She can admit her guilt to God and seek from him what she could not find in the other. When he forgives her and she ingests his grace, actually feels forgiven in her guts, she has both the permission and the power to forgive herself, even if the a person she has wounded does not forgive her. So that works in those situations where you can't get to the other person or when they don't even want to hear from you again. He goes on to say, Now our unforgiving victims may not want us to act like forgiven people. They may be miffed unless we crawl into our holes like groundhogs who haven't seen their shadows. Our unforgiving victims won't want us at their friends' parties. They will bristle when we traipse to the same communion rail as they do. They may want us frozen in self-judgment forever. But if God gave us permission to forgive ourselves, we should walk into all the old places where we felt at home before our fall. Sometimes you just got to give yourself permission. Well, we're about done here, except for one more statement and a little video clip that I think you'll enjoy. 
I'd like to say that all of this ended well and ended right here for Joseph and his brothers. But I can't say that. Genesis chapter 50 records two more times that Joseph wept. One's right near the beginning of the chapter, one's right near the end. The first one is that when Joseph gets word of his father's death, he weeps. The other time he weeps, after they've taken him back to Canaan and buried him there, they've come back home. The brothers feel compelled to send a message to their brother saying, please, don't still be mad at us. They felt like he was only being nice to them because dad was still alive. So think of this. For 20 years, they beat themselves up. 17 more years while they're in Egypt, they allowed their sin to eat away at them. Think of all of those wasted years of self-recrimination. Joseph couldn't do anything about the first 20, but he sure tried to help them with the last 17. They couldn't accept his acceptance. How much we lose when we aren't able to accept forgiveness when it's offered. Well, we started with some smiles and some tears this afternoon, so let's end with them. This is from that same video we looked at this morning, the scene of reunion between Joseph and his brothers. And I'll grant you, if you'd seen the whole video, it would mean more because you'd be more invested in the characters and the portrayal. But even so, I think you'll get a good sense of the emotion that's in this room. Well, I'm not showing it to you just because it's a tidy way of ending all of this. I, what I want you to do, what I hope you'll do, is that you'll see your own reunion with Jesus in this reunion. You'll remember the time that you had a realization that Jesus loves you and that he gave his life for you and that he has truly accepted you for who you are and has, has brought you into his kingdom from that moment on. What a glorious understanding we can have. Think about that moment. Allow yourself to stop being anxious as you sense his forgiveness can be trusted and that it's really okay to accept it. And then maybe allow yourself, you can smile through your tears if you want, as he realizes what he wants to save you from. All of your self-reproach and discrimination and all of your demands of perfection of yourself and of others. If you can just see yourself as a part of this drama, I promise your life will never be the same.